This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So last week we began our Eastertide series through the lectionary readings in Acts as Bishop Grant opened for us the passage in Acts chapter 3. And we heard there that the name of Jesus is sovereign over sickness and sovereign over the power of sin. As Peter proclaims that by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. Today in chapter 4, we see the apostles unjustly arrested and arraigned before the authorities for this good deed. That's the word that Peter uses for it, through which this man was healed. And actually, the passage where Peter says that, verse 9, actually obscures for us what he really says. He does say this man is healed, but Peter actually says that he is saved or delivered. That his healing is a kind of visible sign of a deeper reality that is happening invisibly inside of this man. He's actually being restored to the full integrity of his created humanity by being delivered not just from uh, from this handicap, but by being delivered from sin. The man whom Peter heals in the name of Christ is healed, Peter declares, so that the crowds might see in the body of this man the breaking of the power of sin in this man's life, his salvation, his deliverance from slavery to this power. Just as Jesus healed the paralytic that was lowered down through the roof, and before he did so, he declared that this man's sins were forgiven. And he healed him in order to demonstrate that he also had power over that sin. So the apostles here heal this man so that they too can declare the power and the victory of Christ over sin. In chapter 4, the apostles reiterate this point to the authorities. They perform this miracle of healing for all to see and they attest it again to the authorities that the power by which this has happened is the name of Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit has enabled him, has filled them so that in the name of Christ they could heal this man. And Luke, who is the author of the gospel that bears his name as well as this book of Acts, wants us to see that this same spirit who acted decisively in the life of Jesus is now filling the life of the apostles, uniting them with Christ animating their speech and their action, driving them to bold proclamation of the gospel and performance of the signs and wonders that demonstrate the presence and the power of the kingdom of God. The ordering of of the canon of the New Testament can obscure this fundamental continuity between Luke and Acts for us. We are meant to read Acts as the continuation of Luke. The themes of these two books are so tightly wound together. They're so masterfully and and artfully intertwined together that we're meant to read them as continuous books. And there are kind of narrative features of this and thematic features of this. Both books begin with an address to a certain Theophilus. And my judgment here is that Theophilus is probably Luke's patron, a Gentile convert to the the church with resources to be able to help publish this two-part work. 
And Luke says in both the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts that he's developing an orderly account of what happens in the life of Jesus and then what happens in the life of the church that continues that account of Jesus. And in both books, the city of Jerusalem features prominently. In Luke, all of the action points up to and leads up to Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified. And after his resurrection, Jesus' appearances all happen in the area surrounding Jerusalem. And then in Luke 24, which we heard read today, or part of it read today, Jesus tells the disciples that they will go out from Jerusalem and be his witnesses in first Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, Antioch, into all the world. But that they're to wait in the city of Jerusalem until the power of the Spirit, the promise of the Father, falls upon them from on high. And then Acts picks up where this narrative leaves us. The disciples who have remained in the city at Jesus' command are hiding in the upper room when the Spirit falls upon them with power. You remember the wonder of that passage. And they're transformed into his witnesses, first to Jerusalem and then to all nations. And it begins right there in the city with their witness to the diaspora Jews who have made pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Now, hopefully you all remember a few weeks ago when I preached on Psalm 122, I said Pentecost is one of the three great annual feasts where all faithful Jews were to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And here they are, the God-fearing, faithful Jews from every nation, Acts 2. God is gathering his people again from their diaspora. They hear the gospel each in their own languages. And there are about 3,000 that are added to the disciples' number that day. And from that moment onward, all of the, all of the action in Acts rushes outward from Jerusalem to all the nations. The gospel makes ever increasing strides among the peoples of the Mediterranean basin, the Hellenistic societies there. And as each new group is reached, the, the apostles circle back to Jerusalem again and are sent forth afresh to make further progress and penetrating of the Mediterranean basin into Asia Minor, into North Africa. I always find it interesting that in Acts 18, it mentions that Apollos was from the city of Alexandria, which became so, so prominent and, uh, and so prominent a site of the gospel's penetration in the first through the fourth centuries. And then finally into Europe with Paul's journeys. And then lastly, in Luke and Acts, there is the shared theme of the Holy Spirit's activity. By the Holy Spirit in the gospel of Luke, Jesus does everything that he does in his ministry. The Spirit visibly rests upon Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan, just as it hovered over the waters of the deep in the beginning of Genesis. This shows us that in Jesus is coming new life, just as it came in Genesis. And then full of the Spirit, Jesus enters the wilderness. And by the Spirit, he resists the three temptations of Satan. He returns to Galilee, the text tells us, in the power of the Spirit. And at the beginning of his ministry, he declares by opening the scroll of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to heal, to release the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He heals and he preaches and he devotes himself entirely to the service of the Father all the way to the cross. And then in the book of Acts, it is this same Spirit, which Acts 16 calls for us the Spirit of Jesus who drives the apostles and the disciples to do everything that they do. 
They're filled with the Holy Spirit, the text tells us. And in that spirit, they proclaim Christ and they heal. And the Holy Spirit through them produces the same effects in the church that it produced in Christ so that they might be his witnesses, so that they might proclaim the strong name of Jesus. And don't miss that point. In the book of Acts, over and over again, it is the name of Jesus that has such great power. And we're meant to recall hearing that call upon the name of the Lord, the power of the name of Jesus. We're meant to hear resonances of the Old Testament prophets talking about the power of calling upon the name of the Lord. That salvation will come as his people call upon the name of the Lord. What is that name of the Lord? It is Jesus. It is the power of his name. Because of this prominence of the Holy Spirit, because of this prominence of the power of the name of Jesus in Acts, it has been said with some merit that the protagonist of the Gospel of Luke is Jesus, and the protagonist of the Gospel, or, sorry, of the book of Acts is not Peter or Paul, but the Holy Spirit himself. As Oliver O'Donovan has lucidly put it, theologian, uh, contemporary theologian, what Acts describes for us is how the Holy Spirit gives social form to the triumph of Christ. Social form to the triumph of Christ. I think if we were going to sum up the book of Acts in one sentence, that would be it. What does the social form of the triumph of Christ look like? Just as the Holy Spirit fills Jesus for his ministry, so the Holy Spirit fills the apostles that they might be his witnesses. The third person of the Trinity fills the apostles, so that they might witness to the mighty and victorious acts of the second person of the Trinity in his earthly ministry. And that it is the work of the Holy Spirit and not another spirit in the book of Acts is incredibly important. That it is the work of the Spirit of Jesus is essential. And it's not just essential for our understanding of that book. It's essential for our understanding of ourselves and our place in this story. It helps us to discern the Spirit of God today. Because I assure you, there are many spirits on offer and at work in our world today. And we need to discern those spirits from the Holy Spirit. And we tend to think in our day that all spirituality is good, especially in its non-institutional or even anti-institutional forms. But that's not what Scripture says. 1 John tells us not to trust every spirit, but to test the spirits to see if they're from the Lord. And what is that test? The test is what is given to us in Acts. Does it produce effects in the world? And especially, does it produce effects in Christ's body, the church, the social form that Christ's triumph takes that look like the life of Jesus? How do we know the Holy Spirit's at work in our midst? Well, are we becoming witnesses to Christ? Are we witnessing to him through the healing that's happening in our midst, through the works of mercy and justice, through the powerful proclamation of the gospel? Is that happening in our midst? That's how we know that the Holy Spirit is on the move. That's how the Holy Spirit is on the move in the book of Acts, and that remains how the Holy Spirit is on the move today. Do his people become his witnesses? 
Have you ever wondered why in the Western version of the Nicene Creed we say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? We say this in order to triple underscore that the only Spirit we worship, the only Spirit whose actions we heed, the only Spirit whose work we celebrate is the Spirit of Jesus. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that the healing of the lame man in chapter 3, an act which is then defended before the Sanhedrin here in chapter 4, is an act which manifests the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. And the disciples help us to see this by pointing away from that action to the one who does the action. The healings throughout the book of Acts are described often as signs and wonders. And they are wondrous, right? They're wonderful. They fill everyone who witnesses them with joy. But they're signs. They don't draw attention to themselves. They draw attention to the one who performs the signs. Not the apostles. The Spirit of God. And just like when you're driving down the interstate and you see the billboard. If you're paying attention to the billboard, you're missing the point. Or maybe you're not if you're looking at the tackiness and critiquing it from an artistic point of view. And it depends a little bit on your, on your resistance to consumerism, I guess. But the point remains. The intention of the one who created the billboard was to draw your attention to what's being advertised, not to the billboard itself. And the miracles are the same way. When we think about these miracles in the book of Acts and when we think about our own longings to see miracles of healing and restoration done here in our midst... What we need to remember is the way that Acts interprets those is that they are signs of a mightier kingdom that is breaking into this world. The kingdom that has already defeated the power of sin and death. And of which these signs are glimpses, they're foretastes, they're witnesses. And we who get to see them, get to celebrate them, are witnesses who interpret them according to the logic of this kingdom. Hebrews chapter 2 says, We do not yet see all things in subjection to him, but we do see Jesus. We see him attested in these books that witness to his resurrection and the triumph in social form that his victory takes in the book of Acts. And these miracles, they're signs that, that bring this to our awareness. They bring it to our, to our consciousness. What we long for, what we, what we want to see in a miracle, therefore, is a visible sign of this kingdom breaking in, demonstrating its superior authority, its superior power, its superior force over all the forces of darkness and wickedness and disorder in this world. We long to see things set right. We want to see evidence that's consistent with the belief that we profess. We long to see the smothering darkness rolled back so we can get a glimpse of the light of the world and its piercing and earth-shattering glory. That's what the miracles are for. These healings are revelatory events. They're events that confirm that the structure of reality is as the apostles say it is and that we who follow them proclaim it to be week in and week out. These miracles are performed, as our passage from 1 John today says, that our joy in the gospel might be complete. 
The apostles, as I've already said, constantly confirm the sign character of the miracles that the Holy Spirit performs through them by drawing attention away from the signs themselves to the one who does them. Like when Paul and Barnabas enter the city of Lystra in chapter 14, Paul heals this paraplegic. And there's this kind of almost, it would be comical if it weren't so sad, event that that transpires where the pagan crowds declare, the gods have finally come down to us in the likeness of men. And they call Barnabas Zeus. And because Paul is the one speaking, they call him Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas are so saddened by this event that they tear their robes and they say, no, you don't understand. It's not about us. We're not the ones who did this. We, have, we are the ones who bear the message of the gospel. We are here to call you to repentance and to turn away from these wicked things, these idolatrous imaginations that you have, 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 have believed and have lived. And here in this healing Peter, Peter says, as Bishop Grant told us last week, that it is not through our own power or piety that we have made this man walk. It was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers who did it, through Jesus Christ, through his mighty name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit filled us so that we could do this work. They have not healed this man through their own power, but by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Through the mighty name of Jesus Christ, there is no other name under heaven that is given for salvation, as Peter declares here powerfully to the authorities. To all of these things, the apostles are prophetic witnesses, and it is that which we are also called. Just as the Holy Spirit has reproduced the healing ministry in the, in the apostles, in the ministry of the apostles, so has the Spirit reproduced the authority and the boldness of Jesus to proclaim those works before the authorities. Jesus was not intimidated by Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate when he was arrested and brought up on trial, but he boldly spoke the truth. And so here, the disciples are also filled with the Spirit and they speak boldly to the authorities. And our passage actually sets up this powerful parallel between the unjust trial of Jesus and the unjust unjust arrest and arraignment of the apostles. The two high priests here, Annas and Caiaphas, they're the same ones that have Jesus arrested. And the apostles are arrested similarly for a good deed that they have done, not for any wrongdoing that they have done, no criminality. They're not accused of anything like that. They're accused of stirring up unrest by performing a good deed. And Annas and Caiaphas, they recognize the great power that has acted through the apostles. And do you, do you remember what it says at the, end of our, at the end of our passage today? It says they recognized that they are the ones who were with Jesus. So they recognize this great power. And so at the arraignment, they repeat the question that the crowds originally asked Peter and the apostles. By what power or what name did you do this? And the apostles stirred up and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. In this moment where they ought to be defensive. I mean, the text reminds us that they're ordinary people. They're not learned men. They should be intimidated. They should be cowed. They should be on the defensive. But instead, they use the opportunity to go on the offensive. Filled with the Holy Spirit, they boldly proclaim that this lame man is walking by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Healing And the deeper deliverance from sin of which it is the visible sign comes from no one else other than Jesus. His kingdom is the one that is breaking in to the structures of this world with power. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are to be saved, to be delivered. And the authorities are left speechless. I mean, the confirming evidence of this man's healed body is standing right before them. And all they can do is kind of pull the apostles aside and wag wag a finger in their faces and say, don't speak or teach in this man's name anymore. And then they boldly reply again, judge for yourselves whether it is better for us to obey God rather than man. Now that's a sick burn if I've ever heard one. It's awesome. You know, what's great about the apostles here is they don't deny the authority that's been given to the chief priests. They don't turn it all over, but they declare its limits. When it begins to interfere with the work of the kingdom of God, the apostles speak boldly against it. We must obey God rather than human beings. May it be true of the church of Jesus Christ that we will speak boldly to the authorities when they say, something that goes against the kingdom of God, something that traduces the kingdom of God. When I look at the way that the Holy Spirit empowers the the apostles and the disciples to be witnesses of Christ by repeating in them the patterns that are visible in the ministry of Christ, filling them with power, enabling them to heal, enabling them to cast out the demonic, enabling them to discern the spirits and to determine where the spirit of Jesus is active, enabling them to speak boldly to the authorities, The thing that stands out to me above all is the excitement that they have about this reality that is breaking in. Excitement. This is real. This isn't some airy-fairy thing that has nothing to do with their ordinary realities. Their whole reality has been reshaped around this central fact. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to proclaim him boldly to serve as his witnesses. This is powerful to them. This is exciting to them. This is the most transcendent, noblest, most excellent thing that they could devote their lives to. And so they do. Is that true for us? I mean, we also have the Holy Spirit. But do we pray that the Spirit would so fill us that we could discern the Holy Spirit's work from the work of other works in our culture, the work of other spirits in our culture? I mean, do we pray for healing Do we pray that people would be liberated from the power of the the demonic? Do we pray that we would be able to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus? Do we pray that we would be his witnesses in Pittsburgh? I mean, I confess that I don't usually think that way when I wake up in the morning. When I begin my day with prayer, it's not usually the first thing that comes to my lips. It's not the way that I pray until I am caught up short by a text like this one. But I want to pray for this at Ascension. I want us as a body to pray this way. I want to pray and I want to ask you to join me in praying that our congregation would transparently and visibly be what we have been declared to be in Acts, the social form of Christ's triumph. That we would become witnesses to the power of his name in Pittsburgh, southwestern Pennsylvania, and to the ends of the earth. I want to pray that we would see more healing, more bold proclamation, more works of justice and mercy, more witness in our body. And this week I'd like to ask you to reread chapters 3 and 4 and ask yourself, what work would the Holy Spirit need to do in my life and in the life of this body that would make me into a witness like this? And then ask 
the Holy Spirit to do it. I believe that he will be faithful to do so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.